People are smart, you know, and they're very intuitive. I would say that don't do it with an agenda. Do it without an agenda. Just do it because you want to help. Yeah, just do it because you love what we do, love your love what you do, and you're passionate about helping people. I don't do it with the expectation of getting anything in return from them. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Zero to Exit. This is Ankur and Nilima, your hosts. On today's episode, we're delighted to have with us Bob Cruz, co-founder and CEO of Lowrider Security, an early stage cybersecurity startup in stealth mode. Prior to starting Lowrider, Bob was CRO at Obsidian Security, head of sales at Demisto, which was acquired by Palo Alto Networks for $560 million. He has also held sales leadership roles at Bluecoat, FireEye, F5, and other large security companies, and is also an advisor at many cybersecurity companies as well. In today's show, we are going to talk about all things enterprise sales, how the role has changed over the years and where we are heading. If you are a technical founder of a B2B startup and are of the mindset that if you build, they'll come, you definitely don't want to miss this episode. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the show. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. It's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. I hope to help. Great. Uh, so I want to start this show by asking both of you if you got in on the GME action. Bob, <laughs> I will start with you first. No, I actually, interestingly enough, I started my career in investment banking and I, I convinced myself at a very early stage in my career that I'm horrible at investing. So I just stay, I stayed out of it. So I have the attention span of a goldfish, so I couldn't do it. So, <laughs> How about you, Ankur? Oh, I got, I got hooked. And unfortunately, I do not have an investment banking background. So I did get burned, uh, <laughs> luckily, by not a lot. It was fascinating, a lot of fun, and there's going to be ramifications. I think my favorite line coming out of this whole GME saga was, I think one of the Redditors' motto was, they go, we will remain retarded longer than you can remain solvent to stick it up to the hedge funders. So I thought that was funny and fascinating. But uh, no, I, I love the, the Elon Musk in, involvement as well, though. So, yeah. Everyone jumped in. Me, I'm a very, very slow learner. So even though I invest, I, I'm so glad I didn't get any of that action for the last five days. So we'll we'll start with your career then, Bob. So very early in your career, there's a story you sold. Carpets. How did you <laughs> get from there into selling enterprise software? Tell us a little bit more. It's a great question. So the story starts with watching the movie Wall Street with Michael Douglas and Lunches for Wimps, right? So if you remember that movie, <laughs> Wall Street. So I was convinced when I was going through college at Gonzaga University, economics, I wanted to be Gordon Gecko. I wanted to be an investment banker. And so before I graduated, I interviewed with all the investment banks and none of them would hire me. At the time, Gonzaga wasn't really well known. They didn't have a good basketball team like they do today. And everybody I talked to, and they all, I had great interviews, great contacts, and they're like, well, you need to get sales experience before you come and apply. So I decided that I had a job offer from a carpet company, a commercial carpeting company. And I thought that would be an excellent way to get sales skills and prove that I can sell anything, including carpeting. <laughs> so <laughs> you can pretty much ask me about carpeting, anything about carpeting today, and I can tell you uh, way more than you'd want to know and way more than I 
care to share, but it's all up, you know, in the brain. But so that's how I got into carpeting. It was like the first real job out of college to prove to the investment making community that I could sell. So I did that and I, I had carpet samples in a van, et cetera, but I, I completed that. And then I moved to San Francisco and got a job at investment banking. I worked on the oh. options exchange. I worked for a place called Robertson Stevens for folks that are old like me that remember investment banks in San Francisco and I became a sales trader. I had series seven, six, 63. I was the guy with all the phones and the screens and screaming at nobody in particular. And one of the things we were doing on those trading desks was helping take dot-com companies public. Mm-hmm. And one of those companies was eBay. And I'll never forget the day we were part of the consortium that took them public. And I remember them ringing the bell. And I remember the person that rang the bell, I think was a janitor at eBay that's now a billionaire. And I decided right then and there that I needed to be on the other side of the screen. And so I resigned from investment banking. And the first job I could get in tech was at Oracle. And so that's how my tech career started. And then there's there's more from there, but that's essentially how I got into technology was by way of carpet. (laughs) (laughs) Fascinating. Yeah, Yeah. huge fan of Wall Street, Boiler Room, Wolf of Wall Street. I was just listening to one of the... Uh, exchange between Matthew McConaughey and Leo when when he gets introduced and he's all awestruck by yeah. it. Yeah, I can totally see it, right? Like it's a it's a pretty fast paced eighteen hour workday environment. It's kind of craziness. When you got into Oracle, obviously, obviously when you joined, it was the I, you know it still is iconic company and pretty amazing sales culture, if you will. Like, were there things at Oracle that you learned about selling and selling in a businesses? Obviously, that was your stepping stone. What are some of the key learnings from yeah. Larry Ellison and Oracle? At Oracle, I quickly learned about like politics and some things that you you wouldn't like readily admit that were useful, but ended up being useful. You know, it's a numbers game in terms of how many dials did you make, how long did you spend on the call. Did you call the right person? You know, there was very metrics driven for the time. It was very metrics driven dial for dollars, numbers game type of thing. And it was very political and very competitive. The person next to you who could be your cube mate back when we were back in offices, we, you know, we could possibly steal a deal from you just overhearing you. So it, it was wow. a very cut, cutthroat environment. It may not be that way today, but at the time it was a it was a great learning experience on how to stay positive, how to stay active, how to do one thing I had on my monitor at Oracle, I'll never forget this, was like what can I what can I do right now? So there's always something, whether it was a phone call, a piece of research or an email, there was always something that could further my goal. And no matter how small or big it was, it was always something to do in any given minute of the day, as long as you had a goal. That, that was the thing. It was like, just keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going and persevere. It's not so much the person that does the best. It's the one that lasts the longest. <laughs> you mentioned cutthroat environment. You also mentioned how to stay positive. Absolutely. That, that is very fascinating to me because you're, you're so competitive in the same organization, in the same team, but then you have to stay positive as well. How do those two things work together? Well, it's, it's actually, yeah, I mean, it, it's a, a bit of a contrast, right? Because, um, you know, you're in a team and you need to have cohesiveness because it's like at the time, Oracle versus Sun, Oracle versus Microsoft, you're competitive internally, which helps breed excellence in a, in a regard. I mean, in theory, probably, <laughs> okay. but you need to stay true to your integrity 
And that's one thing that I've always like prided myself on is that I'd never lie. I'd never cheat. I'd never take anything from my teammate or anything like that. And at the time it was really hard because I saw a lot of people stealing deals from friends or from each other and benefiting from that financially and, you know, career wise, but it never seemed right to me. You know, it was part of my, I guess, my Catholic upbringing. I always just felt guilty because I was Catholic. I don't know why. I just felt guilty. <laughs> but uh, uh, in any case, you know, I was always trying to be the nice guy and still trying to win at the same time, which was always a struggle. We heard you a lot of times in Demisto, everyone wins or loses together. It comes from there? Well, partially. At, at the time at Oracle, I was struggling with should I be cutthroat? How do I be more cutthroat? How do I be mean? How do I be more selfish? And so I would, I would say that again, not to impugn more Oracle at all, just my experience or my viewpoint, but it was always a struggle on how do I be more selfish and competitive and cutthroat yet still stay true to my integrity. Win and lose together came from mainly from FireEye, which is further along my career. A gentleman by the name of Jeff Williams, who's my friend and mentor today, who's now at Bain Capital, was, you know, kind of inspired a lot of that. And a lot of things like with sales becomes kind of evangelical in a way. But in any case, at, or, at FireEye, you know, a lot of that started because that was really, I feel like in my career where I really blossomed was at FireEye. So Yeah. Yeah, it's a perfect segue because that's where I was going to have this conversation go. So you were you joined FireEye pre-IPO, yeah. part of the IPO, spent four years. And for the listeners out there, FireEye within four months post-IPO went up like two to 300%. The stock jumped. It's like talk of the town. If you're in BART on Caltrain, everybody's talking about, oh, this guy at FireEye just became a millionaire. And, and kids out there, this is... Back in the days when a stock growing 100% in four months was a big deal. Uh, I know people take it for granted. So I'd love to learn your observations and learning on the path up as, as FireEye grew so quickly, so fast. And then obviously I want to then talk about, you know, then you left obviously in your observation about what happened to its kind of sort of decline from its glory days. So I'd love to get your perspective there. Yeah, well, I'd like to attribute my uh, departure to its decline. So <laughs> No, I, uh, all kidding aside, that's not true. But FireEye, you're right. It's a classic Silicon Valley story. It was a startup that wasn't really a startup. It had been kind of rolling around for, like you said, four or five years. And then in 2010, I joined and it was right where, if anybody remembers, Operation Aurora. Highly publicized, first nation state attack. Yep. Enterprise. Yep. And, and it was a, it was really fire. Eye. I'd like to say that, oh my God, I had it all figured out and I knew where to go. I knew what to do. I knew what to say. But it's like the, the saying is like, luck is uh, the intersection of preparation and timing. Yeah. So I was in the right place at the right time as a result of what I'd been through and who I knew and the experiences I've had. So it's kind of hard to say, this is exactly what you need to do to reproduce that because it was really just luck really in a way. But uh, at FireEye, you know, we started it. It was like I had one salesperson and I need to fire that person and rehire. And the first person I hired was uh, Chelsea Strong, if I may use specific names. And I hired Chelsea yeah. out of, I think she was at McAfee or something. And she was going to Symantec. And I literally started, anyway, nothing against Symantec, but I just talked her out of it. <laughs> <laughs> 
And she's so thankful uh, for you to have done it. <laughs> oh, she's a personal friend. She's, yeah, she's wonderful. And we worked together at FireEye as well for a while. And then we've worked together f- ever since then. So I don't think a lot of our listeners actually really understand the, the Operation Aurora. Can you kind of do a quick 30 second on what happened and that led to the, and maybe talk a little bit about the sandboxing technology because it's not like a common place back then. What right. happened? How did the whole market macro environment plus the technology kind of collided? And in that process, obviously, you and a lot of people got lucky, deservedly so. But but yeah, de- demystify that for the listeners. Yeah, it's funny he says demystify. demystify. <laughs> we'll get there too. <laughs> okay. Yeah, again, Operation Roar, and I think probably... Either of more than I, again, full disclaimer, dangerously technical in sales here. So, but, you know, it was the first nation state attack and there was more before that and after that and everything, but Operation Aurora was the first publicized and widely advertised nation state attack on all, not all, but a lot of the most prominent technical and otherwise enterprises that I'm sure we don't even know about today because they didn't have disclosure laws back then, but that was saying, hey, China has infiltrated all these companies and exfiltrated all this data. And it became something that entered the public conscience. And and, there, every, and everybody was wondering like, oh my God, what's a hack? What's a hack? And so now people like my mother and my grandmother and people that aren't technical understood what a hack was. It's like, wow, you can do that? You can hold up a bank and steal money from it without actually being in there with a gun? You can do the supply chain attacks or stuff like that. So people really, they became part of the conversation on a nationwide status in terms of like, hey, we know what hacking is and it's something that's bad and it's something that other countries do to us. Yeah, we might do to them too. But anyway, so we you know, became something that became part of the national Consciousness that became part of the national vocabulary, became part of the national knowledge. And so people didn't really know what it was technically, but they knew that it was bad. And what happened with the FireEye is that we were there and it realized that like, wait, but I have antivirus software. How did it get past my antivirus software? And taking nothing away from antivirus software, but that was antiquated technology. And of course, Operation Aurora proved that it could go, it'd penetrate that and go right by it. And yeah. so it became like, all right, we need a new solution for a new threat. And that's where FireEye came in. And so that's right where we had to execute and did a good job of doing so. And that that's pretty much what precipitated our, our hockey stick up into the right, that sort of thing, yeah. through our IPO. Yeah, who knows uh, how many companies will SolarStorm now take to the IPO and many, many more will come. Now, you know, obviously left uh, FireEye and it's not the same company it was before. We all have perspective, right? Like part part of what happened was sandboxing zero day, which was sort of a new thing, became commonplace. Everybody started copycatting. But I'm sure there are other, like I'd love to get your perspective on sort of, was it lack of innovation, obviously losing you? Uh, You know, what was the big thing? Uh, that happened that a couple of years, it's not the same company anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've, they've taken some steps recently that'll be interesting to see how it evolves. I, obviously, I have a ton of respect for Kevin Mandia and everybody that's running the, the team there and Chris Key, et cetera. Uh, so again, I don't want to impugn FireEye at all, but you know, it's a constantly evolving thing. And that's, that's the beauty of cybersecurity is that at, at any point in time where you think you know everything and you have the right solution, 
just wait. <laughs> Don't ever buy a product that says zero false positives because that's just not true. <laughs> but in any case, yeah. yeah, at FireEye, I mean, it was one of these things where we would have never gone public if it weren't for uh, Ashar Aziz founded the company and, and grew it uh, wonderfully. And it was a great technology. And essentially what it was, was instead of, hey, is this a grenade? Let's like take this. The example is take your grenade and throw it in your yard and see if it blows up. You know, the shrapnel flies everywhere. Yeah. Versus FireEye was like, hey, take a grenade and put it in a very armored bucket and see what happens in the bucket. And if it blows up in that bucket, then there's a grenade. So that's what FireEye's technology was, was essentially mimicking uh, a victim and allowing the malware to infect it. And they're like, aha, it's it's actually malware. And then from there, the evolution was like, how do we prevent that? So once you know more about it, you can get attribution and MD5 hashes, all this stuff. You know, that was really, really wonderful anti-APT type, type of technology, advanced persistent threat technology. And then the advent came of like Mandia meshed with FireEye. And that was a primarily a services company, 80% services, 20% product. And the, and the challenge was, is all right, now we acquired Mandiant, which is Kevin Mandia's company, who is a phenomenal vanguard in his field, yep. primarily services. And like when the house is on fire, that's who you call, <laughs> right? To, uh-huh. to mesh with a different culture and a different product, which was we were an appliance. They were a service with product attached to it. Like, how do you, how do you bring those two together? and still keep the relative kind of stature for each companies. And so I think that's kind of what happened was there's confusion in the marketplace on, are you a services company? Are you competing with the channel? Are you creating a product? And what product? You know, it was just, it created some confusion because there wasn't a clear message or vision. Got it. But in and of itself, Mandiant was a wonderful company, preeminent Vanguard in its field. FireEye had pioneered the sandboxing technology, as you say, where you put the grenade in the bucket. And so it's like, how do you bring those two together? And so we're seeing the evolution of that today, for sure. But it's, yeah. and it's, it's still ongoing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, well said, you know, the downfall or not going, staying in the glory days is I think a big function is in our industry, it's innovate or die. Well-meaning, super sharp people, right? Like are executing this. I think Dave Duvald and Kevin Mandy are just amazing people. Sometimes Definitely. macro conditions, sometimes innovation, etc. Speaking of innovation, obviously you were part of the company right after FireEye. We just innovated a lot. We're crushing it in the market, which is Blue Coat. And I think you you were there during the glory days, and then I, I think you left before the acquisition to Symantec. Obviously, generally love to learn any key experiences you've had at Blue, Blue Coat, but more particular about like how to hire and retain top sales talent. So love to get your perspective on any area at Blue Coat that you'd like to share with our listeners. Yeah. I mean, first let me say, so my career, you know, at Oracle and then beyond that. So I still maintain very close relationships with everybody. So <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to throw anybody to the bus, but, and I know you're not asking me to do so, but I went from Oracle to startup in uh, South of Market, San Francisco, did all that. That was fun. That was great. I'm not sure what we did, but we had fun. <laughs> <laughs> and then we went to, I went to F5 Networks and F5 Networks is actually, if I could direct your attention there, it's an interesting story. And I still have tons of great friends there. And F5 is literally trying to reinvent itself. So if you're familiar with layer four through seven networking, they're very focused, like their their core product, which at one point was 80% of the revenues was big IP. 
which is a, an IP load balancer application. Yeah, a, what do they call it? APC. A I don't know. I got out of late for the do seven, but but uh, <laughs> they were always trying to. These are an interesting story because they're right in Seattle, next to Amazon and obviously Microsoft. But they could never really figure out what to do with the cloud or how to do it. So it's a really interesting kind of thing. They're figuring it out now, and they have been, and my good friends are doing it, Calvin Rowland, et cetera, and uh, they're doing a great job, but it was an interesting case study. Uh, Blueco was an interesting thing where we were a proxy appliance, port 80, just straight up proxy, which is a dirty word, right, for networking. And then, it's uh, especially a dirty word at Palo Alto Networks. Yeah. You, you can get fired if you use the word uh, proxy. <laughs> Well, I'll let my I'll let my proxy speak for me, right? So yeah, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but yeah, Blue Code was interesting. We got preoccupied as a company, and I say we, including myself. There's nobody to like finger point out, but we got preoccupied with the riverbed, white area, yeah. like what was what was it? Wan acceleration, or I forgot what they did. I don't even know. But yeah. we decided that security was an afterthought. And we needed to go after riverbed and not what they did. And we kind of lost sight of security. And uh, that's kind of what led to, before Symantec, it was a private equity, Toma Bravo. And uh, right after I left in 2010 and joined FireEye, Toma Bravo acquired Bluecoat and effectively took it off the public market. Yeah. And then further down the road, they meshed it with Symantec. That was actually a really good idea. I, there's the, a lot of debate on how well it was executed, but yeah, I, I definitely think that was a good thought. And, and then obviously we know what happened today, but... But at the time, it was like uh, we got really preoccupied at Blue Code that security wasn't the way to go. What was what did Riverbed do again? I sorry, somebody at Riverbed is going to kill me for saying this, but something to WAN acceleration or wide area, whatever. Yeah, something like that, and that's okay. We will. But is it? Uh, but that, I mean, try. isn't that in itself kind of a, a case study it, that we can't remember? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, they did SD-WAN, which is obviously WAN acceleration, SD-WAN, which is a big thing nowadays. So, you know, either it's fascinating story how like in security, a lot of these things come through cycle, but while the technology in the industry landscape change, one thing doesn't that doesn't change is really kind of the fundamentals of selling. Love to get your perspective on sort of hiring and retaining great talent. You have had like multiple four-year runs at companies and with sales you know, teams, it's really hard to keep keep that thing. What have you learned about what separates good sales reps from the great ones? What do they do? Uh, how about good sales leader to great sales leader? Like, what have you learned that some of our listeners who want to get into the business can, can learn from? Well, I would just say it's like passion and make it personal. And I know that yeah. sounds really pedantic, but you know, there's always a better technology. There's always a better paying job and you can chase money. You can chase stories. But the one thing that people can't is feeling and personality and they want to be a part of something bigger than they are. And and it needs to be fun. I've worked for and tried to manage as a command and control type of person. And I've worked for people that try to manage that way, basically based on fear. And I, I understand that tough love has its place. Yeah. But I truly believe that if you trust people and empower them, if one of their greatest, not I wouldn't say fears, or one of the things they never want to do is let you down because you trust them. That's the kind of people I like to hire because the best kind of person is self-propelled. 
Yeah. And uh, maybe that's the Catholic guilt in me, but you know, I have this thing where I don't, I have a fear of failure and I don't want to let anybody down. And maybe I'm a people pleaser and I could go to therapy for that for years. But the reality is, is that I care more about delivering a solution that makes my, my prospect look like a hero. I care more about creating a team that allows my team to win. I care more about them than I do myself. And that altruism is something that people see and feel, whether it be your employees or your prospects and customers. Because the reality is, is and Nilima knows this story but all too well, but life's too short. It can change in an instant. And you got to make it personal because you're going to end up spending more time with your customers or with your employees than you will anybody else because that's the way we work. Maybe not in COVID now, but but the reality is, is that if you don't make it personal, if you don't do something you're passionate about and you have integrity about, then it's really not worth doing. It's really not worth doing, no matter how much money is involved. And yeah, I see absolutely. that I see that as a salesperson. <laughs> yes, I can I can attest to that. Having seen Bob's style very closely, one uh, related question though, Bob, a pattern where sales behaves a little bit differently in in public listed companies versus startups because the the pressure is very different. Because when you are uh, accountable to the street, there are very different pressures sometimes and. That can attribute to this behavior. Well, yeah. So essentially you're asking the difference between like a startup versus a publicly traded company and how, yeah. how that operates, that sort of thing. Yeah. It's very, very different. You know, in a startup or a smaller company, there's nowhere to hide. There's no run rate business. There's no POs coming over the fax machine automatically or anything like that. <laughs> you really, every single opportunity, every single email, every single call, every single, everything counts. And um, in bigger companies, and again, I, I'm not impugning, but uh, just my preference is that I've experienced in larger companies, there's a dilution of effort. You have different departments, you have different processes, and you have different people, and there's a 16-step process to close the deal. Whereas at a startup, it's a two-step process, you know, or something like that. And I've been asked, like, why do you, why do you like small companies or startups? And I'm like, well... They're slightly dysfunctional and slightly disorganized, kind of like me. <laughs> <So> <laughs> the bottom line is, is I don't like to hide. I like to own as maybe a self-admitted control freak, but I can't stay in my swim lane. I like to understand every single part of the process. And to answer your early question, what makes a good sales rep in my mind is somebody that owns every single step of the process. They understand how they buy, why they buy, when they buy what partner they use, what kind of terms they use, what kind of paper they use. Every single aspect, you've heard of the, the metaphor, it's like how the sausage is made. It's like the, the best sales reps in my man understand how the sausage are made. They understand there's a person in procurement. Okay, when are they going on a vacation? And when will they be in town? Does it coincide with my expectations and what I need to do? Because like you're selling a, you're selling a firewall to, to somebody, but they might, under, they might not understand their own procurement process. So it's almost your job to understand it for them. And in a startup, you need to own every single aspect of that. I would say you need to own every single aspect no matter where you work, but it's harder to do at a large company because, you know, it's, you've got so many other things coming at you. So there's clarity of mission in a the startup. There's clarity of ownership. There's clarity of accountability. 
Yeah. So speaking of great reps, after Blue Coat, you went to Demisto. Uh, where no, I went. I went, I went uh, Blue Coat, Fire Eye, kind of screwed around a little bit, <laughs> and then went to Demisto. So okay, yeah. so you saw explosive uh, growth that most startups dream about. Is it yeah. fair to say you had the most fun at Demisto? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Uh, I, no, I did. I definitely did. Hey, uh, that's a cheating question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I did. You know, at, at Demisto. Uh, you know, and I attribute it to the to the team, to the founders, specifically Rishi and Slavic, that I was able to, they encouraged me not to stay in my swim lane. Came up with the symphony conference and logos and t-shirts. I just love doing all that stuff. Customer advisory councils and, and then all the while in parallel, closing deals and signing channel partners. There wasn't like one swim lane I needed to stay in, kind of cross all of them and I was empowered to do so and I was encouraged to do so and I really appreciated that so yeah I can I can totally uh, see why you had so much fun at startup you your voice obviously lights up when you talk about the misto and startup and somebody who has done it for many years I mean it's just it's just an amazing ride one of the key things you have to do in startup is obviously leverage your rolodex your networks obviously right and some of the best sales leaders have a tremendous network and while a lot of people in product engineering, every function talk about networking being a leading indicator of success, career growth, they're not able to do it. Like some people are just reluctant. Maybe they're not outgoing, but they just don't network enough. You, I'm assuming, given your roles, are tremendous at this craft. Can, can networking be taught? Like what have you learned about networking over the years that you can kind of share with our listeners? Yeah, the best thing I can say is that people are smart you know, and they're very intuitive. I would say that don't do it with an agenda. Do it without an agenda. Just do it because you want to help. Yeah. Just do it because you love what we do, love your love what you do, and you're passionate about helping people. If you do it with an agenda, it's pretty obvious. And I've encountered that and that sort of thing. And But if you're really, really in it to help and to further... So I can't tell you tomorrow, like not tomorrow, next week I have probably four or five calls where helping people that I have no financial stake or anything in, I'm just helping them because I like to help. And I know I'm kind of the pay it forward thing. I know it like it'll probably come around or maybe not. I don't really care. I really just like helping. That really helps my networking where people are like, all right, how do I do this? How do I do that? share a channel program or a comp plan with somebody. I don't do it with the expectation of getting anything in return from them. It, yeah, it's it's kind of a philosophy I have. And it's, it's, it's something that's always benefited me in terms of relationships and people. I can sleep at night. So. <laughs> yeah. And it's also about obviously making investment, right? I mean, you, you have to make a lot of investment upfront, help a lot of people before you start uh, reaping the reward. But like you said, if you treat it as a transactional thing, people will smell that from a distance and, and just turn up, turn away rather. Yeah, or you'll attract transactional people and then you'll get caught in something that you don't want to be in. Absolutely. What's the fine line there? Because at the end of the day, when... I reach out to Bob, for example, I am asking for help. So there is definitely some kind of agenda and you are investing your time. So what is that fine line where you are 100% sure that it's going to help both the parties? Yeah, I'm never sure. I'm really not. I, I literally go into it going, 
I want to help Nalima, no strings attached. And I think that you have to be pretty, pretty clear on that. And obviously you need to be judicious with your time and uh, time is money, all that good stuff. You know, now where I'm CEO and co-founder of my own company, I have to be careful right now. We're kind of in a quiet period. So I'm loading myself up with a lot of like mentorships and things like that. I got to be careful because that'll come to a screeching halt (laughs) as soon as our product's ready. But I literally have no expectations. And I think that that's, um, you know, what I found is actually when you help people, they expect there to be an agenda. They expect there to be an expectation. And that kind of takes care of it for me. Their expectations or their preconceived notions. It's, it's just something where, you know, and I kind of intuitively know where to cut it off as well. And it's kind of the EQ thing, but. Like, like helping you, Nalima, I'm like, don't expect anything in return at all. I'm not going to be like, hey, remember that one time I introduced you to this one person? Yeah, well, you owe me this. Introdu- I would never do that. Speaking of EQ, that's the difference, which is unique. And that's, that's what I wanted to unravel because that's just such a soft piece that's very hard to judge. Any insights? How do you evolve your EQ as a salesperson? Yeah, it's definitely a process in the trial by error. I can tell you like at Oracle, when I, I made money as a sales rep, they're essentially auditing existing customers, which did not feel good at all. And I can tell you honestly that I did not make any lasting relationships with any end users where they're replicating a database and they owe us another quarter million dollars. That's not a fun call, but I hit my quota. I didn't feel good, so I didn't like it. So earning money and hitting quota wasn't enough. I always love delivering solutions that actually matter and work and make them look better. So you have to have, you have to identify what's core to you. And if it's no, no, no shame in like making, killing your quota and making millions of dollars a year, there's no shame in that. That could never be my primary goal. And I know I sound like a boy scout, but I could never make that my primary goal to just enrich myself at the expense of others. And it's kind of personal. It depends on the person, but you know, play, play the long game. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's like I, I'm truly passionate. I went into this industry purposely and I really like I'm mechanical in general, like I can change the, my oil in my own car and all that stuff. So I like I like solutions that solve problems. Yeah. So transitioning from obviously history to current and now, obviously, as if the pain of uh, startup was not enough, you decided <laughs> to take on more pain. And you could have gone into the sunset and said, okay, you know, I'm going to just retire after this uh, amazing run. But no, you're starting your own company, low rider security. And I am so happy that uh, you have agreed to finally disclose what you're working on. No. Uh, this startup is going to be the launching pad for that. Nice try, nice try. <laughs> I am just joking. Obviously, tell us tell us why you decided to obviously start the company. Maybe, maybe tell the listeners at least which zip code they should look at uh, in terms of what you're going to be working on. Uh, anything uh, you can share. Obviously, I'm kidding. You, you don't need to share anything more than... Well, we are, we're in the same space as GameSpot. No, I'm kidding. GameStop. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm buying. Uh, is it publicly traded company? Is it a is it a stack? Is it a stack? I'm I'm going in. <laughs> yeah. So, so why, why did you start a company? I'd love to love to. Well, I, it was one of these things where you know, again, we're self, so I can't reveal what we're actually creating. But it was one of these things where I call it my magnum opus. It was something I always wanted to do. When I left that trading desk in investment banking, I knew that I wanted to do startups and start my own company. 
And that started from childhood. My father owned his own, my parents owned their own heavy equipment company, cruise tractor and equipment. And I always saw the, the bane and the benefit of doing that. But at the end of the day, you control your own destiny. And that, that was always kind of ingrained in my head where you're, you need to control your own destiny. And rocket science isn't rocket science is like, there's something, something very romantic and alluring about starting your own company. But in any case, so I always had that. So there was just a recurring theme, recurring problem statements that kept coming up. And I went to Obsidian Security and wonderful company, wonderful founders, loved it there, never intended to do anything else other than Obsidian. But I reached a point where I kept hearing the same thing and I just kind of made a decision. I said, if not me, who? If not now, when? I'm not getting any younger. I'm 50 years old. And I just decided that this was time to try along with my co-founder. And it was definitely a strange time to do it, but it's also a pretty smart time to do it. Because our potential competitors are either not non-existence or they're suffering because of COVID or whatever. By the time everything opens up, we'll be ready to start selling. So that was kind of one of the game things. But really just one of these things where we just had to do it. And my mother asked me, she's like, well, isn't that really stressful for you? And my answer, and it's just true, true to being, is that it's more stressful for me not to do it. Because this is something I've always wanted to do. And I've made this arbitrary decision that now's the time and I don't really care about COVID. I mean, I care about COVID, but yeah, I don't, I just need to do it. Yeah. So it's kind of more come back to that, make it personal and make it passionate. You know, lo and behold, put a pitch deck together and really didn't have much trouble getting funded, our seed funding. And we're going to raise an A here in a couple months and keep going. And it's just very thankful, very thankful. It could change at any second. So we're very humble as well. But um, very lots of diligence, I'll tell you that. First time CEO and founder during COVID. <laughs> you know, I'm lucky yeah, they, I have hair, hair lift. They took a lot of follicles. <laughs> yeah, no, no, super, super happy with you. It's one way to lead life is to have no regrets. And I think if that's something you always wanted to do, I think what better time. Uh, are you even able to talk about which segment of security, NetSec, AppSec, it says low rider, so low down the OSI layer. I see the Lily Second Lily layer is smiling. <laughs> third layer is network, but there is a rider element to it. So I'm thinking it's network security, but I mean, I have no idea. Are you able to share even with space or that's also pretty stealthy? We Well, it's very stealthy, so I can't okay. really kind of... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Both of you are extremely smart, so you'll figure it out like a second bit. I've had somebody somebody on LinkedIn was like, oh, I get it. It's like, you're going to be securing the next generation of electric cars. And, uh, and my answer was, exactly. <laughs> so, so I'll ask a related question. Uh, sales leaders as founders. Not, yeah. not very usual in Silicon Valley. But then mm. there's always a first time. Uh, what advice would you give to your fellow sales leaders uh, who want to start a company? Yeah, I would say that that was that's that's a really great question because that was one of the things that I thought was going to be an issue, and definitely we addressed with our investors. Very very go to market heavy, dangerously technical, underlined dangerous. Yeah, I mean for me it was surrounding myself with the right kind of people that are obviously technical. And also being dangerously technical. I understand enough to understand how things work. I can't make them work, but I understand how they work. 
So I would just say that if you're a go-to-market person that's starting a company, make sure your co-founder, the people you surround yourself with are peerlessly technical and make sure that you're in good company in that regard. And that, so that's easier said than done. But also I would say that you need to have a product or something that you have a very good understanding about product market fit from a go-to-market perspective. And uh, these are just master obvious, master of the obvious kind of statements, but make sure that whoever you're partnered with or you're, you're investing with knows, knows the technical parts better than you, but you already know who to sell it to and what to sell. <laughs> so again, you know, super general high level statements. It'll all come clear in time, but <laughs> uh, is that, is, is that a secret as well? Do you have like some tentative timeline? Yeah, I would say we'll be out in summer. I'll be out in summer. Yeah. Where we're positioned, you know, my co-founder was with CrowdStrike. He was with me at FireEye. He was also with me at Demisto. So, you know, there's all sorts of people that would be interested in knowing what we're doing. But we're not competing with any of them. <laughs> yeah, you should be a politician. <laughs> Who says I'm not? <laughs> I used to tell Nalima I was a, I'm the resident game show host at my company. So, <laughs> all right. Since we are not going to talk about lowrider, uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about sales uh, roles. Enterprise sales roles have changed over the years, and we are also seeing consumerization of B two B. COVID has also accelerated that trend. Right, a lot of direct selling through the web. So what does the future hold for top-down sales motion in the next five years? Yeah, I mean, I think that you look at Gong and Salesforce.com, there's always like, Salesforce.com was always one of the first companies that had like kind of a hybrid field inside role. But at the end of the day, you had to be really good at, really good at telephone skills and demand generation and digital marketing and things like that. And, uh, you know, gone are the days where, I'll just hop in my Ford Taurus and drive around and convince people to buy my stuff. You know, there needs to be a really intelligent way of selling. And I thought we did a really good job of that at Demisto, you know, specifically Rishi with, and yourself, Nalima, with the community edition. That really proved to me that the things have changed where cold calling may not actually be the way to go necessarily. But uh, I would say that um, what's benefited me is having started, you know, I've started from the ground up in inside sales. That really benefits me. And I look for that in people that I interview and hire that they're not waiting for leads to come to them. They know actually how to go out and find them and uh, have made those connections and made it personal and created that uh, Rolodex. So I would say that the future of the enterprise salesperson needs to be a combination of being savvy with the digital tools that are out there, like the Clarys and the Gongs and et cetera, and knowing how those systems work. So for me, what benefited me as an individual contributor was understanding how sales operations worked, how CRMs worked, and how HubSpot and Eloqua, when that existed, worked, and lead scoring and stuff like that. So I think that the evolution of the enterprise sales rep is a combination of kind of marketing operations or demand gen, as well as just you need to have more tools in your toolbox. Not only do you have to have a high emotional you know, EQ and great telephone skills and understand how to talk about NFL teams, whatever it is that you do, uh, you need to understand also how the plumbing works in terms of like digital marketing and digital lead generation. 
it's not yeah. enough just to be it's not enough to just be charming and all that stuff you need to understand the plumbing because that's Absolutely. that's what's going to happen yeah yeah i think i think you're right it's spot on it's kind of hybrid is the way to go i think people are it's like false dichotomy is like is it going to be top down is it going to be bottoms up well it's going to be both i think you're going to to take down multi-million dollar deals somebody's going to want to talk to somebody who can be trusted but at the same time the lead gen has to be product driven well well said awesome that brings us to the final segment we can we can do this all day long i think with uh, your skills and personality i think we can have hours and hours but i want to be mindful of your time so uh, this is the rapid fire round i've got few questions yes or no Uh-oh. simple answers all right, all right? it's going to be fun i promise you that so the uh, you ready for that ready Born ready. So the first one is just a play on the sell me the pen. Uh, sell me GME. GME. Well, sell you GME. I, I would say that GME, it's not about GME. It's about the opportunity to democratize trading. It's an opportunity. It's a window into, I guarantee you that the majority of people that were playing that had no idea what GameStop's all about. They were looking at some sort of a, uh, a trend or an uptick. And it was very alluring and romantic to kind of beat traditional Wall Street at its own game. So I think it was the gamification, no pun intended, but it was the gamification of trading and beating entrenched old school investment banking at its own game. Sold. I am buying. All right. Uh, The next one is, uh, uh, you know, I've got a scenario for you, just a simple one. Top rep, average region, an average rep, amazing region like a tech company right selling it to b2b yeah. uh, who gets what who gets what yeah so are you going to give the top rep an average no. okay region or the yeah. best region yeah. or an average uh, rep the the best region where he can sell all day long or he or she can sell all day long yeah, who, i mean who gets sales, what? sales management is proven time and time again you're the best thing to do is focus on the top performers you'll always get more uh, output out of the top performers. Now, assigning regions, absolutely. I would give my top rep a crappy region or an average re- region rather than the top performing one. Now, would I give my average rep the top performing region? Maybe not. I'd probably split that territory twice or something like that. I would take that top region and I would split it and I would <laughs> see what happens from there. But uh, that's how you segment a market. But I absolutely, I believe in, all right, top rep, develop a region, do something hard, show us that it's you, not your region. But if you have a top region, I probably wouldn't give it to the average rep. I'd probably split that region. Love it. Do you have a favorite business book? I I do. I have a lot. Nalima knows a few of these, but uh, I have some books that, you know, some are tongue in cheek, like What Would Machiavelli Do? By a guy named Stanley Bang back in Fortune Days. I have the book that I recommended or handed out to everybody to miss. So The Obstacle is the Way. Okay. Which is a really good one. I have another one from a, a Navy. So my dad was in the Navy. I had a military kind of like upbringing, but it's your ship. Mm. And then, you know, I can go on, but like five dysfunction of, of a team, for instance, is another good one. So Love it. We will put up all these books in our show notes. Um, if you had to be locked in in a house with one historical or current figure outside of obviously your friends and family, shelter in place, COVID, and you got to spend maybe a week or two. Who would that oh, uh, individual be? <laughs> sure, maybe a day. T- take your pick. Who would that person be? Can I say Gordon Gecko? 
Probably oh, not. yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> allowed as well. <laughs> no, I think it'd be pretty fast. There's some people out there that are well publicized that we know about, like Jack Welsh or it would be pretty interesting to talk to some of them are uh, you know, like Andy Grove, who's no longer with us, but fascinating individuals. And so I always to, to rather than give you a name, I, I actually like people that uh, that have kind of Henry Ford's probably he's not the best example because he has some controversy around him. But I love the quote when he had it was like, you know, cut your own wood. It'll warm you twice. Mm. And um, so I, I love. I love people and I kind of fashion myself in the same way that have come from meager beginnings and, and built themselves up. And so I would say that any, any figure that's kind of done that is fascinating to me because I, I, I do this today socially in a restaurant or whatever. I always try to figure out or ask people what they do and why they do it. And I love, I love their stories. The stories yeah. that the stories that fascinate me the most are the ones where somebody's bootstrapped and lifted them kicked their own butt first and lifted, lifted themselves up. Yeah. Yeah. The classic uh, American dream and, and entrepreneurship. Uh, love it. Yeah. yeah. Do humans become multi-planetary species in our lifetime? Absolutely. Wow. Love it. All I right. mean, you so can, you consider stocked in another planet. So it could be. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And the last question, um, advice you'd give your 18 year old self. Yeah, I would say I would get in closer touch with the the EQ part, the things like body language and just understanding office politics and politics in general. Uh, I didn't really give enough of that credence at 18. I thought it was all crap. And uh, you can either lift 100 pounds or you can't. The reality is, is uh, some of the smartest people get somebody else to to lift that hundred pounds. And that's, that's the part that, uh, I, uh, underappreciated at 18 and, and I embrace today. Love the advice. Awesome. Well, um, that pretty much wraps up uh, this episode of zero to exit, Bob, thank you so much for taking the time. And, uh, obviously you, and I don't know each other, but just in this one hour conversation, you know, I can tell you that you're the kind of guy, um, I'm rooting for success. So I wish you well on low rider security. Uh, You're going to crush it just like you have, uh, historically, and we'll be keeping an eye on your progress. Thank you so much. much. Thank you for the honor. Yeah. Thanks, Bob. Maybe we can have you after you come out of stealth. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I, I would I would love that. Anytime. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Enjoy hey, the week.